Well, people of God, we've come now to hear from the Lord, and so I'll be reading from the book of 1 Thessalonians. I began preaching through that a little while ago. Um, now, I'll be focusing on verses 4 and following, but I'd like to begin with the, from the beginning. It's only 10 verses, the, the whole first chapter. And all ten verses are quite important. They're, 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 they're making a foundation that is so rich and wonderful. And so please think uh, about all of this. I'll be referring to even some things in the earlier verses, but then we'll be looking at verses 4 and following. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians... In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Well, indeed, I've been working on preaching uh, through First Thessalonians. Uh, I talked to Robert Arendale, had lunch with him, and, and he thought, uh, he thought you're, you're in chapter 5 or something, uh, you're about done by now, right? I said, well, not out of chapter 1 yet. <laughs> I always go kind of slow at the beginning because I find that you spend time talking about the whole book and trying to align things up in terms of the the rails of theology that run down through the book. And then once you get those rails set up, then you can, then you can kind of run. But you've got to get the firm footing at the beginning. So there I still am. And what I've been trying to do, and I'll, I'll talk in, in brief to you about this, is, is as we look at 1 Thessalonians, to see through it the kind of deep structures of Paul's entire theology. I think a lot of people don't handle the book of 1 Thessalonians in this way, but it really does allow us to do that. You can see in 1 Thessalonians the deep, deepest concerns of Paul that animate everything 
that he does. One of the reasons why it may, um, this may be the case in 1 Thessalonians, do, do you know um, what book might be, possibly could be, the very first book that Paul wrote? Well, could be this work, yeah. Maybe Galatians, there's a little bit of a um, debate as to which one, but this could be the first book that Paul wrote. And so we see from the very beginning a trajectory that he starts on and works from. And what I've been trying to say uh, from the beginning, that what is at the heart of Paul's theology, his whole way of thinking, it's this. It is communion with God. Moreover, it is communion with the triune God. The Trinity is not some invention of the third century, uh, of the Nicene Council, as I have been told. The Trinity is in the Bible from the, from the first uh, verse, but also it, is, it runs through Paul's thinking, and we'll, we'll get a little flavor of that. And so for Paul, what animates him, true religion for Paul is not, if I can put it this way, you know, being down in the south, uh, it's not just getting saved, all right? It's not even... Uh, just having your sins forgiven so that you can get a, if I can put it this way, a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? That's not rock bottom, although, of course, having our sins is essential. Uh, having them uh, forgiven, that's essential. True religion can't simply be reduced to escaping the awful wrath and curse of God due to our sin. There's a deeper goal. True religion, as revealed in Scripture, is about coming to possess God himself in the closest possible way that a creature can possess God. And that's not new to Paul. Paul didn't invent that. This is right, right out of the Old Testament, Psalm 73. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion forever. That's what true religion is about possessing God, the triune God. And so Paul, you know, he doesn't write a thesis on this at the, at the beginning of the book. He, he expresses some casual statements that kind of just evidence that everyone knows that. I, I'm going I'm to begin assuming that. And when you read the book of Acts, you also find out that he taught extensively uh, before this letter came. He taught on the kingdom of God, Acts 17, before he had to be you know, run out of there because of uh, hostilities and problems. And so he's, a, he's a alluding to these things. He's a, he's, he's, he makes reference to those deep structures. We see it even in verse 1. Uh, verse 1 astounded me because you see in Paul regularly, if you read the book of Ephesians, for example, Paul is always talking about being in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Him. We are in the Beloved. But as far as I know, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are the only places where he says we are in God the Father <laughs> and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in God the Father and we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is telling us there is that as wonderful as our union with Christ is, and, and don't get me started on that because I'll, I'll never stop, um, but as wonderful as our union with Christ is, it's not the end 
even as glorious as it is, it's a means to an end, a communion with the full triune God. Christ and our union with Christ brings us into communion, union and communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so that's at the heart of Pauline religion. We see it in verse 1. We see it in in some unique ways in verse 3 that I'm not going to get into right now. I brought it out in other texts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for example, tells us that, that this beginning to possess God is seeing him. We long to, the believer longs to see God, right? And so have we seen God already? Well, in a sense, yes. Paul says, we behold the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who we see by faith. Uh, right now, but then the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians is going to be about waiting to see him, not just by faith, but by sight, as we hear about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. And so all these passages, again, show us that at the heart of biblical religion is communion with the triune God, sharing the very life of God himself, and that's something which has already begun for the Christian. But though it's begun, it's not finished, it's not perfected, it's not consummated. When will that happen? When the Lord returns. And and again, that's a focus. That's that's probably the focus of 1 Thessalonians, but it has this backdrop. He's not just coming to bring judgment on the wicked. I think that's the way 1 Thessalonians is reduced to sometimes. It's It's not just a negative focus to his coming. It's positive. It's to give himself uh, to us later in First Thessalonians, talks about how those who are dead will be raised up, or, or those who are alive will be raised up. The dead too, we will be caught up in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. That's the positive. That's the hope. That's the the deeper understanding of religion. And so. Everything that I've been saying so far is kind of laying the background. That's what the Lord is doing. He's giving himself to us in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, But how do you come to possess him, first of all? You know, there's a communion for Christians. It's begun. It will be perfected. But, But how are you first brought into communion with God? Let me put it to you this way. Why is it that when you hear the gospel... You say, Lord, save me. (laughs) And your neighbor doesn't say that. Maybe your neighbor curses God and curses the gospel. What makes the difference between you crying out, Lord, save me, and your neighbor saying, you know, you know, something I can't say here, right? Um, What's the difference? Well, If the difference boils down in the final analysis, uh, if if it's based on something in you, something you do, or more commonly understood, a decision you make, right? If that's the ultimate difference between you who cry out to the Lord and your neighbor who rejects the Lord, then the ultimate reason for your being saved It's in you. (laughs) And basically you're saying that there's something better in you than is in them. And if we say that, what we do is we destroy 
the doctrine of God's free, undeserved, unmerited, and it's important to say not just unmerited, demerited grace. Not just that you didn't earn it, you and I earned the opposite. And if we begin to say, well, yeah, the, I'm, I, uh, I, I, got, I, I, I received Christ because I had a, a spark of faith in me or something like that, you've really toned down the doctrines of grace. You've, you've really begun to destroy them. And so rather than saying the reason you come to possess God in salvation, which is the goal of true religion, is because of something in you, the text here in front of us says something else. No, the reason is not in you. <laughs> Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. God has chosen you. Therefore, the title of the sermon is, chosen by God, perhaps I should have said elected by God, because I'm going to use that language of election in the sermon points today. In fact, uh, the Greek of verse 4 can be translated, for you, for you know, brothers beloved by God, you know your election. The English translate it, translate it got chosen by God. Either way, it works fine. So you know your election. Let's think about the glorious doctrine of election. And we're going to see two things. The first thing we're going to look at is the basis for God's election. What is the basis for God's electing you? That's point number one. Point number two is uh, related but different. It's the application of that election to you. So what's the basis for your election? And uh, then let's look at the application of that election to you. Well, first of all, then, the basis for your election, for God's electing you, for God's choosing you, because the text clearly said God, God has chosen you. Well, why does he do that? Well, we are told by some that election, uh, uh, God's election of us is based, um, well, I guess we're told that he elects us because we've elected him. All right, that's the thought of many. Uh, his choice is based on our choice. This is the view that, um, um, forgive me for putting it this way, it sounds kind of crass, but I, ha I, think, I, I think it's okay to depict it like this. It's God having his, his crystal ball, right? Like the magician will look into the crystal ball and he sees the future. God's looking into his crystal ball and he's, he's seeing, okay, well, look, look there. Um, they choose me, so I'll choose them. Now, this, this teaching is, is not going to be the teaching of Scripture, we'll see, but it's not just that it's mistaken, it's, it's a sad teaching. It's a very, very sad teaching, not only because it ignores the Bible's teaching about fallen, sinful humanity, that sinful humanity not only will not, but cannot choose God, right? The natural man refuses the things of God. Romans chapter 3, no one seeks God, not even one. Right? Ephesians 2, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. John 6, 65, he says, No man uh, uh, can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's impossible. But it's not just so sad because, you know, that, that view that God elects us because we elect him, that it's wrong about we would ever elect God. We wouldn't. 
But it's also sad because this teaching robs, it robs the Christian of the true meaning of the love of God. You see, the true basis for God's electing us is not anything in us at all. The basis for God's election is not in us. It's only in God. It's in God and only in God. And where is it in God, if I can say, speak that way? Well, it's in one place. It's in the love of God. Look at verse 4 again. Paul not only speaks about God's election in verse 4, he addresses his brothers and sisters as those beloved by God. Brothers beloved by God. In fact, the love of God spoken in verse 4, it's the only reason found anywhere in that, around in this text for God's choice. The love of God. Now, again, some might say, well, well, yeah, God's election is based on his love for us. But he starts loving us because we start loving him first. Some would say that. John tells us in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not, <laughs> not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when people say that God loves people because they loved him first, that's actually saying the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says God loves, uh, and this is love, not that you loved God, <laughs> but God loved you. You see, what makes God's election so amazing, so stupendous, it's, it's, it's not motivated by anything in you whatsoever. In fact, the Bible goes at great lengths to say that when God considers you, apart from his self-initiating, the self-initiating, electing love that's found only in him, when he considers you apart from that, all he sees is, is sin and hatred of him. You and I are the kinds of people, if God came to us apart from his electing love, here's what we would say. And maybe this sounds like something people have said. Crucify him. Crucify him. That's what we say. And so God elects uh, not on the basis of our love for him. Uh, he elects us not on the basis of anything in us, but in spite of what is in us, <laughs> in spite of our sin and hatred of him. And that begins to make God's love so Wonderful. Do you see why I'm saying the other teaching robs you? It's a sad teaching. It's not just a bad teaching. I didn't even think of that rhyme. It is a bad teaching, but it's a sad teaching. It robs you of the love of God, the deep, deep love of God. God's election is based on his eternal love for you, not in anything in you. Always it's found in him. So look and look and look and look for the reason God chose you, and you'll only find it in him. The only answer you will ever, ever, ever find in the Bible is that election is solely based on the incomparable, unfathomable love found within God himself. Now, it's, it's very worth noting at this point that only if God is triune, and I, I began speaking about that, remember we, we heard that 
Paul has that doctrine. He, said, he talks about the church who is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to hear about the Spirit in a moment. But only if God is triune can the love, can love flow deep from within himself. Why do I say that? Well, John tells us in 1 John 4, 8, he says this. This is a wonderful statement. God is love. He is love. He doesn't just say God shows love. He doesn't say God has love. He says God is love. How can God be love if he is not the triune God. Think about it for just a moment. If God is, is not triune, he could not be love because who would he love? In fact, he would need you <laughs> to be who he is <laughs> you know, because he couldn't love without someone to love. And there is no one to love if God is not triune. But the glorious doctrine of the Bible is that God is love precisely because he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is an eternal love that has existed between the three members of the Trinity. And that's what you and I are being brought into. The life of the love of the Holy Trinity. Again, this is, um, there's so much that I've, different things I've looked at in previous sections of this, but I'll just make a, a brief reference to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians. Paul speaks about a labor of love. And when I worked through that, I compared it with, um, he speaks about um, faith and hope. And, and in, in this chapter, the order is faith, love, and hope. Elsewhere, he speaks about faith, uh, hope, and love. But love has a, a real centrality to it that as important as faith and hope are, they don't have. Why is that? Because we are told in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that love never ends. Faith and hope will come to an end because you have to understand that faith is the faith which looks for sight. It's not just, you know, it's not just our personal faith, but it's the, the, the faith of the believer that longs in hope to see God come. And when he comes, that faith-hope dynamic, it passes away. But then we enter into the eternal love of God that never fades away. And so uh, uh, the depth of love here is quite amazing. The love, uh, um, love is rooted in the being and the persons of the eternally triune God himself. And so, Christian, what is the basis of your election? Why did God choose you? The only answer you'll ever find is because of his unfathomable, uncomprehensible, mysterious, majestic, awe-inspiring, undeserved love. That's it. That's the reason. That's the basis for your election. That's point number one. Only the overflowing love of the triune God to you. But that brings us to our second point. We've looked at the basis of God's election. But now let's look at the application of that election. Now, the, the, God's election is from all eternity, right? He elects from eternity. 
But Paul tells us in Colossians 1.21 that you and I, we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And, and so, though eternally elected, there was a time in our lives where we were alienated and hostile in mind, Paul says elsewhere, far off, far away from God, under his wrath and curse. And so when and how did that eternal plan become uh, yours and mine? Put another way, when is God's electing work in Christ applied to you? When does that happen? We'll look again to verse 4. Verse 4 uh, says, and the rest of it, uh, uh, we read in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now look at verse 5. Because. Because why? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul says God's eternal election comes to you because the gospel comes to you. The gospel has come. Now, what does Paul mean by the gospel? Well, he doesn't really spell it out in detail in these verses. The best explanation given in 1 Thessalonians is down in verse 10 where we are told about the Son of God, whom the church is awaiting to be revealed from heaven, the Son of God who was raised from the dead and who delivers us from the wrath to come. The gospel is found in what happens to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we like to think about the gospel as being something we get, the, the benefit of justification or sanctification. Those are wonderful things. But the gospel is first and foremost about what happens to him, his being raised from the dead, his dying on the cross, then being raised from the dead and returning. That is the gospel. Because only if that happens to him, if he is the sin bearer and then is delivered from that verdict of guilty sinner, can you be delivered from the wrath to come. But Paul's focus in verse 5 is not really in explaining the gospel. He just says, you get the blessings of election when the gospel comes to you. And then he has two parts about how you receive it. There are two parts. Notice he says in verse 5, he says, first of all, the gospel is applied. It comes to its hearers, first of all, in word. The gospel comes in word. But he says, not in word only. So the word is very important, but not in word only. He goes on to say, the gospel is applied to them in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. Now these, these three things, power, the Holy Spirit, and full convictions, don't think of those as three separate things, but as three parts to one thing. So you've got two things Paul is talking about. The gospel coming in word, and the gospel coming in by the powerful operation of the Spirit who works in us to give us full assurance and full conviction of the message preached in the Word. The Word and the Spirit working together. And it is primarily the preached Word that is in view here. And so, again... Um, we see, uh, we know about the electing love in verse 4, which is eternal, which never has a beginning. 
but we do not we do not get any benefits of that eternal electing love of God until when until the gospel comes to us in word and in spirit in word and in the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit who works faith in us and unites us to Christ um, let me explain to you the way the Westminster Confession puts this distinction between not coming to possess those eternal blessings until a certain time. The Westminster Confession uh, puts, uh, in, puts it in this ways with respect to the benefit of justification, just one of the benefits of salvation. Westminster Confession of Faith 11.4. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them said it at the beginning of the sermon, true religion is communion with God at its heart. It is communion with the triune God. And here we really begin to see that. We see that we have no share in the Father and in the Son without the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And, and I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it until the Holy Spirit doth in due time apply Christ unto them. Isn't that beautiful? Your justification, your whole salvation is not just an abstract principle, but an applying of a person of Christ unto you by the person of the Holy Spirit. It is a Trinitarian and personal Salvation. Well, I begin by saying that the basis of your election is the love of God. And I've now wrapped up by talking about the application of that electing love being accomplished by God, the Holy Spirit. These two things, the basis of God's election found in his love and the application of his election found in his spirit, they are, they are really an incomparable feast that our souls uh, should not cease to dine upon. Listen to how these two things are brought together, the electing love of God and the Spirit of God. Listen to how they're brought together in Romans 5, 5. We read, God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Think about it. The love which existed from all eternity, love had to be poured into your heart. Well, how did that happen? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You are united, uh, you, you are brought that electing love of God in the person of the Holy Spirit who has poured into your heart. By the way, that is very much baptismal language there, isn't it? It's not to say that baptism automatically saves you, but it is an efficacious and powerful working of God as it is received by faith. In other words, you never, ever, ever receive God's love until you receive the Holy Spirit and you are brought into union with Christ. 
that eternal electing love of God is made yours, is poured, poured into your heart. Think about the love of God poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit, whom Christ has received and who Christ sends to you. Can I give you um, any more encouraging word than that? I, I know of none. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you need Christ who gives himself through the gospel, the gospel proclaimed about him, what has happened to him, his death and his resurrection, and that you need the Holy Spirit to bring you Christ? Are you looking unto this electing, saving God today? Look unto him in faith. Look unto the one who in the declaration of the gospel through preaching by the powerful operation of the Spirit brings you assurance, brings you assurance and full conviction of your hope. And as you look to him, find your only comfort and your hope in serving him and then turning away. I don't have time to get to all this. I, I had to, the way I did this was uh, I spoke of election in two sermons. The first sermon was these two points. The first sermon was the one I gave you tonight. The second sermon was the one I preached today, which was uh, the, the, the evidence of election. And that is the last part. I, w I don't have the time to get into it. But the one whom God eternally elects and, and loves and gives, um, uh, gives the gospel through word and spirit, he then works in that person and, 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 and evidence of a changed life the evidence of election emerges, and you see it in verses 9 and 10. Uh, those who belong to God truly, who are, who are truly part of that electing love, turn from the idols of this world. They turn and serve the living and true God and expectantly wait for his Son from heaven. Now, I, as I studied verses 9 and 10, I began to think, I don't know if there's a better, there's two better verses to describe the entirety of the Christian life than this turning from idols to the living and true God and waiting for his son from heaven. That's really what Paul is talking about at the beginning when he talks about the church's work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And so as you expectedly await this son, serve in faith, hope, and love. Amen. Our Lord God, bless us now and encourage us that um, your, the doctrine of election is not a discouraging doctrine. It is a very encouraging one because we find such a beautiful um, picture. Uh, we find the beautiful truth of love, undeserved, unmerited, demerited grace and favor, which flows only out from you the one who is love in the depth of your being. And you bring us into that life which you, which you possess in yourself through Christ as the gospel comes in word and by the powerful operation of the Spirit who brings us to full assurance. And we pray now that as that takes place, you would make us those who evidence and possess the fruit of election, namely turning from the worthless, dead, mute, meaningless, hopeless idols of this world to serve the living and true God and now to busy ourselves, to make ourselves busy awaiting your Son 
and his return from heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.